this is really what carrier aviation has been doing across the last 30 years of my life. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is the Air Power Podcast, powered by GE Aerospace. I'm J.J. Gertler. And I'm Vago Maradian. On today's program, the Sagamore Institute's Dr. Jerry Hendricks on the naval aviation lessons being learned from the U.S. operation to counter Houthi threats to shipping in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden. And Sam Bendett of the Center for Naval Analyses with the latest on the unmanned air war between Ukraine and Russia. And even some headlines in air power. And it's all powered by GE. GE Aerospace is advancing revolutionary engine technologies for this decade and beyond. And the XA100 adaptive engine is tested and ready to help the U.S. maintain its air power advantage. Learn more at geaerospace.com slash XA100. And the Defense and Aerospace Report and its family of publications is also brought to you by HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Bell, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. JJ, what's in the news this week on All Wings Considered? Bago, I thought we were going to have the big B-21 news, that we had the second publicly acknowledged flight of the aircraft and that it was going into testing. And then Dr. Bill LaPlante, the DOD acquisition czar, decided to upstage that and signed the B-21 to its low-rate initial production contract. Yes, for the first time in 27 years, the United States has a bomber in production. Also on low-rate initial production news, the F-35. We have now built more than 1,000 of them, and every one of those has officially been under low-rate initial production. I'm not sure that's what initial means, but we think of that as the new airplane. It is now a quarter to a third of the way through its total production already. And raise a glass of whatever you wish to the F-16. It's the 50th anniversary of the Viper's unexpected and very shaky first flight, a plane that has become the global standard in fighter aircraft the way the F-4 Phantom did before it. Bago? And last week, we discussed that Bulgaria joined the fold with the Block 70 version of the airplane, so it's still selling well. And again, as a baseline aircraft around the world, it's just a tremendous capability. It is the first answer. In the same way that auto enthusiasts say the right answer is always Miata, any country <laughs> looking for a fighter, the first answer is F-16. And we are now the LRIP podcast here, obviously. So if you want to come here, for, uh, real insider news here, people. But I, I think it's extraordinary that we are, you know, as you said, I mean, a thousand airplanes into the F-35 program and we're still doing it as an LRIP effort. I mean, it is just unbelievable if you think about it that way. Particularly if you look at what their full production rate is likely to be, it's not very different from the low rate the aircraft is going at now. And when you have the example of the B-21 going into production after just one aircraft has been built and is flying, then the idea that you can't go into full production after you've built a thousand is perplexing at the best. And I think that's all the more stunning when you consider, JJ, and we're going to talk to uh, Jerry about this in a minute, right? On the Next Generation Air Dominance Program, or NGAD, the U.S. Air Force is looking at first unit equipped in 2028, an incredibly aggressive schedule, given that we don't even have a down-select decision yet, although it's expected this year, as we heard from Steve Tremble a couple of weeks ago. And we're in 2024 now. Is it possible to have that aircraft on the ramp in four years if it isn't already flying? I think we know the answer to that question, JJ. <laughs> 
But all of this, again, is a big hat tip to the Northrop Grumman folks in Palmdale for what they've been able to do with the B-21 program. Yes, they got a head start because it was building on a bomber program that had been canceled prior to it. But what they've been able to do and the timeline they've been able to do it on does not have a real parallel in recent aircraft procurements. And uh, going to give uh, a big shout out to the current Air Force Secretary, Frank Kendall, who at the time was the ATNL, who put into motion all of the demonstrator programs to make sure that actually risk was reduced early in this effort, as opposed to trying to eat through it now. So we wish the Raider team and everybody associated with it Fairwinds following seas and uh, congratulate them uh, on a program that is actually hitting its marks. And joining us now for an update on the Ukraine war, especially the air part of it, is my good friend Sam Bendet of the Center for Naval Analyses. He's part of CNA's Crack Russia team. He's one of the world's leading experts on the Russian military, especially its unmanned systems. And he's also affiliated with the Center for a New American Security, as well as the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Sam, welcome back to the program. Always a pleasure having you on. Great to be back, Ronald. Let me start off, right? I mean, obviously, we've been talking a lot on our programs about the war and how it's going and that it's stalemated and Russian capability is improving. Bring us up to speed on where we stand on the air elements of this and the unmanned battle and how it's actually transforming in some respects really dramatically in favor of the Russians in terms of capability. Well, both sides are intensifying strikes by long-range drones against each other. Russians have fielded what looks like a jet-powered Shahed version, Shahed 238. It was a one-time appearance, but now there's a lot of debate discussion whether or not this is just something they got from Iran and assembled it, or whether this is going to be a long-term manufacture sort of domestic Russian projects. Uh, Ukrainians have unveiled uh, several long-range kamikaze drones, the Scythe, and uh, a jet-powered unnamed drone as well. There's been a number of strikes on Russian energy infrastructure, including in the St. Petersburg region with drones. Russians um, have struck uh, Ukrainian civilian targets, and uh, Russians are also claiming that Ukraine struck a uh, civilian market in the Donbass region as well. So there's been a lot of tit-for-tat attacks, again, on military and civilian targets. And of course, in the backdrop of Long-range strikes are the continuous tactical struggles between FPV armies on both sides of the divide, uh, that is, Russian and Ukrainian efforts to field FPV drones in ever, ever-increasing numbers. I'm not sure if we mentioned this during our end-of-year podcast, Vago, but it is probably worth repeating for the listeners that Ukraine pledged to assemble at least a million FPV drones this year, along with additional 10,000 drones for mid-range and long-range strikes, of which 1,000 drones are going to be flying sort of for hundreds of kilometers uh, into the very heart of Russia. And of course, for Russia, this means uh, manufacture of Shahed and Geran drones in ever-increasing numbers, modifying them and launching them against Ukrainian civilian and energy infrastructure. So there's a lot taking place. And a lot of what is taking place are patterns from previous two years. And we're coming up on a two-year bloody anniversary of this war. So a lot of these developments are a result of two years of fighting and two years of adapting to tactics and counter-tactics by the adversaries. 
Now, the Russians have been using their own technology. They're using Iranian drones. Increasingly, we're hearing they're using Chinese drones, which gives them a very deep magazine if Beijing is willing to ship a lot of particularly low-end UAVs. What is the implication of having a much larger flood of smaller quadcopter-type UAVs coming in from the Russian side? Russians are relying on a large number of Chinese-made DJI drones, as well as on very significant quantities of components to assemble simple quadcopters like FPV drones. Again, all of these components are coming from China. And of course, this means a steady supply of parts, components, and drones. It doesn't mean that China is going to sell Russia these drones in packages of thousands or even tens of thousands. It just means that the Russian procurement of these drones and drone components is much simpler uh, and much easier than it is for Ukraine. Although for their part, Ukrainians are still publicly saying that they can still get some parts and some drones from China as well. So what this means is that Russians are capable of assembling FPV drones, especially in very, very large quantities. There's been a debate in the end of 2023 over how many drones Russia and Ukraine are manufacturing monthly. And the Ukrainian number was, I think, 50,000 drone stops while the numbers for Russia were floated in many magnitudes more, anywhere from 50,000 to 300,000 drones. What you need for a very large number of cheap, commercially available FPV drones is the supply of parts. And if those parts come uninterrupted from China, then Russia has sort of a hand up in this struggle. But again, Ukraine is not sitting still. Ukraine is trying to manufacture these parts domestically, trying to get these parts from other countries trying to rely a little bit less on China than it has done so before. But again, manufacturing FPV-type drones, simple quadcopters in huge quantities, means that for now, the manufacturer has to rely on China and all of the components that go into making that drone. And of course, that presents its own set of problems. Last week, I was uh, on a call with a Ukrainian commander who noted that DJI drones are everywhere and that the Chinese are really opening up the taps and restricting the taps to the Ukrainians, that we can't find it, he said, even if we want to. The Ukrainians have been very, very clever in how they're working to try to intercept these drones. But it, at some point, it becomes a massive challenge, Sam. What are some of the ways the Ukrainians are using to defend themselves against these kind of onslaughts that, you know, has them unfortunately outnumbered in some cases? Well, there's a very large amount of different types of counter UAV and electronic warfare technologies from more expensive military-grade systems to a uh, rapidly growing number of tactical trench warfare systems, as the Ukrainians are calling them. And these are built by Ukrainian startups. They're built by volunteers. They're assembled from commercial components. Some of them are purchased outright from places like China, which actually sell counter UAS rifles and, uh, and small-scale uh, scanners, as well as uh, some of the jammers commercially, which can be purchased by the Ukrainians. And so it's basically a hodgepodge of different types of technologies. And some of the Ukrainian experts and uh, some of the more outspoken volunteers who are speaking publicly about this problem are basically saying that there needs to be more standardization. There needs to be specific selected technologies that the government has to put its industrial weight behind certain types of systems to manufacture them at scale. Otherwise, people in the trenches can rely on some of the technologies that may work today, but not work tomorrow. The other problem, of course, for all of the drones and for both sides is that once a countermeasure has been developed for a specific drone or drone type, then the drones can switch uh, operating frequencies or switch tactics, in which case some of the technologies and tactics developed previously to counter them are no longer working. 
And so it's a constant race for measure, countermeasure, measure, countermeasure, and so on and so forth. Sam, we've focused on the Russian side today, but the Russians say the same thing, that the Ukrainians have lots and lots of drones. Do we know the truth of the matter and what the balance actually looks like? Well, it's a very good question, because if we look at the public data, if we look at social media posts, if we look at what the Russians are posting, what the Ukrainians are posting, they're basically echoing each other and saying that it's the other side that has massive quantities of drones, uh, that they have swarms of drones, clouds of drones, that multiple drones can attack a single target or even a single soldier. Uh, and so sometimes it's difficult to determine uh, who actually has the advantage or disadvantage, because at the very tactical edge in the trenches, at the line of contact, the language is the same, and both sides are vulnerable to the other side's ever-increasing number of FPV and quadcopter combat drones. 21st century air power comes in all shapes and sizes. Sam Bendet, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. And if you like the Air Power podcast, don't miss our other weekly podcasts on the award-winning Defense and Aerospace Report Network. Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company. They clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The Downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space. And our Technology Report, where we dive deep into the ones and zeros of cyber, networks, chips, and more. It's hosted by Vago Maradian. Congratulations to Chris, Chris, and Laura for winning 2023 Defense Media Awards. And joining us now is a good friend, the Sangamore Institute's Dr. Jerry Hendricks. He is a retired U.S. Navy captain, naval aviator, and strategist of the First Order. Jerry, welcome back to the Air Power Podcast. It's always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Vago, it's great to be here. Jerry, there's considerable focus on the U.S. campaign to protect international shipping from Houthi targeting uh, and intimidation, both in the Red Sea as well as in the Gulf of Aden. The USS Eisenhower has been in the center of that campaign, backed by surface warships, uh, a guided missile submarine, the USS Florida, as well as allies and partners. I think based on some of the reporting and, uh, and work we've done, including our very own Chris Cervello, I think we think roughly three to four dozen Tomahawks, one to two dozen standard missile sixes, which are the higher altitude interceptors, lots of five inch rounds and 50 calibers. We know helicopters have fired their guns uh, and rockets. Super Hornets have used air to ground bombs. And of course, missiles, you know, have been used against fixed sites. So not necessarily a terrific expenditure of munitions, but at the heart of it is naval aviation. From your standpoint, there's a, a lot of discussion about how many lessons have been learned, especially in an Indo-Pacific context. From your standpoint, what are the key lessons from an air power perspective that we should be learning from what we're seeing over there? Well, Vago, I think you know we need to make sure that we correctly characterize what we're seeing here. You know, this is not the high-end theater fight that we often talk about with regard to aircraft carriers vis-a-vis -vis China and the Western Pacific, you know, trying to fight our way into defense of Taiwan. This is what we would normally call a lesser included case. This is really what carrier aviation has been doing across the last 30 years of my life, you know, beginning uh, first with operations in and around uh, Saudi Arabia during Desert Storm, and then we're doing Kosovo, and then we're back to Iraq, doing long haul missions up to Afghanistan, essentially carriers operating in largely permissive environments doing defensive counter air, doing, uh, you know, support operations to ground forces or to their activities ashore. This is not sort of defense of the sea or sea control, or for that matter, really power projection, because we're operating in a very permissive environment. 
Eisenhower has been doing a fantastic job. I mean, we're talking about one carrier operating by itself, which means it's limited in the number of flight hours it does a day. I'm sure that they've been stretching that. In fact, I think the social media posts of both the CO and the XO of that ship, who are very expressive in the Twitterverse, demonstrate that that crew's been working really hard to keep the aircraft up. But as you detailed, most of those missions are missions against fixed targets ashore, or for that matter, sort of smaller targets in the air. But it's not sort of the high-end defensive counter-air or power projection fight that we would expect. So let's celebrate you know, what carrier aviation is doing here from the USS Eisenhower, the second oldest aircraft carrier in our inventory. But let's make sure that we limit the success or our celebration to put it in the right context. So, Jerry, if this isn't China, right, I mean, the dynamics are completely different. I guess what's different is this time there is somebody who's actively shooting and trying to target those ships. You know, Mason was going through that. Obviously, Carney is going through it. And I guess it's what happens if over a very protracted period of time, you know, they get used to not being struck. So now that dynamic is changing. Are there any lessons at all then that we can draw and take from this? in an Indo-Pacific construct? Or is this really just sort of more of the same, just executed well with a little bit more complexity to it? Well, I think that we should discuss the addition or or what sort of a a lesser included player on the carrier air wing brings to bear. The E-2 Hawkeye uh, being airborne uh, with its radar and adding that to the overall sight picture is probably adding a lot of awareness to what is happening with the BERT-class destroyers with their SPY-1 radars or the Ticonderogas with their SPY radars, sort of keeping that picture together and helping to prioritize the targets because that uh, radar dish uh, on board the E-2 Hawkeye is probably providing some really superb queuing data and and helping with the prioritization within the combat systems associated with the, the SPY radar sets. But we're not hearing a lot about sort of look down, shoot down of the F-18 Hornet fighters taking on these missiles. There may be one or two cases, but by and large, what I've seen is that most of these cruise missiles or even the, the one anti-ship ballistic missile that I heard about, those were engaged by Aegis and those ships were defended based upon that type of a defensive system. So to the extent that the carry air wing has been used. It's been used to target launch sites ashore, which has been the mission of the carrier air wing and specifically sort of the Hornet-based carrier air wing. Again, across most of my active career, which my active career ended some 10 years ago. So we've been really doing sort of this uh, assault ashore at fixed bases that are not well defended. So again, the guys have been doing a really great job. Eisenhower and its air wing have been doing a great job but let's make sure that we characterize this. Now, how does that apply? Well, I I think it applies if we think about the Western Pacific campaign and looking at a potential China is the idea of where the carrier fits into building the overall awareness picture. Uh, Because right now the Navy and the Naval Aviation Air Wing doesn't have a a, a platform that's going to contribute significantly, I think, to a China-like fight. We don't have the range on there. We don't have the stealthiness onto the carrier at this point in time. And uh, and we don't have enough of the aircraft that maybe would come to bear. I'm thinking of F-35Cs, which have some limitations based upon their aspect in a China fight, where China is going to have a lot of sensors from all aspects looking at us as we try to penetrate into a first island chain. So again, this is sort of a separate lesser included case. 
This is where Naval Aviation does a really good job, has been doing a great job, needs to be celebrated for what it is, but let's not overplay it. What, if any, surprises have we gotten from the Houthis? Were their air defenses better than we thought? Did they have ways of interfering with our inbound missiles? And are we seeing that evolve as the campaign goes on and Iran possibly provides them new capabilities? I don't know that we've actually been surprised, except perhaps in volume and the way that this operation has been sustained. I think that those are the two surprises, just how many weapons they've had and the fact that they very clearly are not being deterred, uh, even as we strike their installations ashore. So they're coming at that with that. I think the thing that's been a pleasant surprise is that we haven't seen more electromagnetic warfare. They're, the jamming of systems or other things that can be used to decoy or disguise. Well, I'm not seeing any reports of that, that there's mm -hmm. really sort of a mature jamming or EW environment. So really, this is a best of all cases environment where we're getting very basic systems that are not all that sophisticated. They're either flying on cruise or ballistic arcs, which are the types of weapons that we've been training to go up against again back into the 1980s. So in, in many ways for the defensive system, I'm sure that Aegis is sort of enjoying, uh, if Aegis has a personality and we all know that it does, is probably enjoying this type of uh, competition. Jerry, there have been stories that the Navy still doesn't have kind of the right tools for the job, that it's using some of these ad hoc systems in part because, for example, it doesn't have those shipboard lasers that we've been discussing. Remember the Office of Force Transformation laser that initially the Navy didn't want when Admiral Art Sobrowski, the late great Admiral Sobrowski, came up with the idea, and then eventually it became the centerpiece aboard the Ponce. What are some of the capabilities the fleet needs in a more intermediate sense, right? I mean, obviously the China threat is an important one, but now the UAV threat has proliferated as has the cruise missile threat, right? So we know this kind of stuff is going to be coming at our ships more often, no, no matter where they are, maybe even by transnational groups. What are some of the capabilities from an air defense uh, perspective that we need out there in, in the fleet, whether it's aboard the carrier or whether it's aboard a surface combatant? That's a great question. And, and you know, the, the joke has been that, you know, we've been five years away from an active uh, laser defense system for about 25 years. And unfortunately, that joke is more of a joke than it is a truism in the sense that we've had active capabilities and we've been really having a great evolutionary track looking at laser systems, uh, whether it was, you know, chemical lasers or continuous wave lasers or whether it's sort of pulse lasers. There's been a lot of research going on, both in Navy labs as well as commercial sectors, looking at lasers. However, we haven't sort of taken them to that next level, moving from the lab to full operational or an IOC-like condition to get them out in the fleet and really begin maturing them. I think there's been actually some hesitance on introducing lasers or other types of electromagnetic directed energy uh, microwaves, for instance in sort of introducing those to the fleet. One of the issues that we face is the ships in the fleet that actually have enough excess power to be able to integrate some of these new capabilities that we've begun looking at because, you know, we've been operating Burke-class destroyers since the early 1990s when Arleigh Burke himself actually attended the commissioning of the ship named after him. But the thing is, is we haven't seen a lot of these ships grow in their power capacity. So when you start looking at lasers, uh, whether it's pulse or continuous wave, or you look at uh, microwave things, these are going to be significant draws 
upon the ship's system. And so I think that there's been some hesitance on integrating those. And in fact, many of the test beds that we've looked at are for these, like the Ponce, for instance, you know, there were additional generator capacity added to those platforms or the platforms like the ZoomWalt already have excess electrical uh, generation capacity. So it's very easy to integrate sort of test or prototypes onto those. But your basic fleet ship, whether it's a Tyco cruiser or Burke destroyer, there's not a lot of excess uh, energy capacity. I will say that the three Zoom Waltz and the Ford, which just have you know gigawatts of capacity, those are the ships where you could really rapidly integrate some of these things. And I would hope that we would do so soon. Let me uh, ask one follower to that. One of the things which I think is fascinating is that the Aegis combat system that is the centerpiece that you know takes the information from that great phased array spy one system and then gives you, generates that full battle command picture and to be able to target through it, did not have an ability to have the five-inch gun as part of that equation, right? At some point, you know, smart Navy guys were like, hey, you know, we might need it hey, let's get a couple of junior officers and a mutual friend of ours was part of that process and the field of the capability that's actually proving to be useful. What's sort of the object lesson here for doing some smart thinking when you have the time to say, hey, you know what? That capability could actually be useful. And it turns out it actually was. You know, it's interesting. And I'm, I'm very familiar with who you're talking about there. There was regret that when we went from Ticonderoga class cruiser to the Burke class destroyer, that you know Tycho's had a five inch gun forward, five inch gun aft, and the Burke uh, only fields the one five inch gun forward. And there was a lot of people that said, you know, I'd really like to have that fore and aft so that we have that ability to give us a, a very wide range uh, to be able to do this. But the the story that I really go back to when you say this, Vago, is the story when we first tested the Long Beach, USS Long Beach, our first guided missile nuclear-powered cruiser. And John Kennedy uh, was attending this test. And there was a threat of a target coming in, and the Long Beach was supposed to engage that target. And when uh, it got close, suddenly the Long Beach lost power, and, and the radars went down. And of course, the missile system went down. And Kennedy, who had been a PT boat captain, kind of looked around and made the comment, we need to build these things with guns so that you're not entirely dependent only on the high-end, high-tech solution, that sometimes it's the low-end, low-tech solution that matters. And so we've gone uh, over the last uh, several decades to an all-the-above approach. Now, that may bring added expense as you have to integrate older and, let's just say, lower technology into it. But there's some instances, let's face it, where it's going to be a lot cheaper to shoot something down with a five-inch gun, if it's possible, than shooting it down with a SM-6 missile. So, you know, there, there has to be an economic aspect of this, and that economic aspect suggests that you should look at an all-the-above design. It reminds me of another air power great. This is the Air Power podcast. The great Robin Olds really lamenting that the Air Force version of the Phantom did not have a gun uh, at a time of the sort of the early stages of missiles boy, we could have used it. And then they have the gun pack that they put on the airplane. So something to be said for that. Anyway, JJ. 
Yeah, but the flip side of that is in the Gulf War when Chuck Horner said he would cashier any pilot that brought back a gun kill because you were giving the other guy a better chance. Missiles made a big difference between uh, when he was flying <laughs> F-105s and F-100s to where we got. But uh, sorry, it didn't make this into a pedantic uh, moment. Go ahead, JJ. No question. Jerry, let's look to the future. Because this is an air power podcast, we, of course, are nuts about following next generation air dominance in both the Air Force and the Navy. At first, the two programs were in parallel. Then the Navy consciously decided to lag back, let the Air Force do the learning and benefit from that. Then the Navy's FAXX got accelerated. Now it slipped back again. The Air Force has been talking out loud about what their force is going to look like, 150 or so NGADs connected to collaborative combat aircraft. What's the Navy's vision? Do they have one? And if they do, do they need to be talking about it so that people can get behind it? Well, I, I think the Navy's vision is strained at this point in time. Uh, the initial idea was that it, the Navy would sort of follow where the Air Force was going, which means there would be sort of a central uh, air dominance platform that would then operate in conjunction with unmanned drones, uh, you know, loyal wingman type of a, a philosophy. However, the Navy has not to the best of my knowledge, firmly embrace the idea of these uh, unmanned systems operating in a cooperative fashion. And the Navy's NGAD system, again, from what we hear, because this remains a highly classified program, seems to be focused on FAXX, which is simply sort of a more modern version of the Hornet and a follow-on with a manned uh, air dominance fighter. Um, which would have a, a more efficient engine, then have super crews, uh, probably a 35% increase in its range. But still, even if I look at that based upon you know Hornet numbers today, you're still looking at an, an aircraft uh, with less than 1,000 miles in range. The issue here, I think, is I don't know that the Navy actually has come up with a firm uh, vision of its future with regard to naval aviation. Because every time that they try to embrace it, then they have to come up against the conversation about the role of unmanned and naval aviation and, and the air wing itself has a real issue, I believe, with unmanned and unmanned uh, combat aerial vehicles. They seem to want to have an exploration of unmanned when it comes to MQ-25, but that's a very uh, sedate supporting role. But the idea of unmanned in cooperation with a manned fighter or, or a manned attack aircraft or a combined role aircraft, that's something I think that they're still having difficulty getting their mind around. And I think that that is a shortfall. It's a, a strategic shortfall on the part of naval aviation. Here we have this new class of aircraft carrier, the USS Ford, and, and all the ships are going to come after it. And we have not significantly updated the air wing to sort of match the increased capabilities that come with that carrier. We have an old air wing, an old vision with a new carrier, uh, which we've made a significant investment in. And, and again, I think that's a strategic mistake. We were supposed to end right there, but I can't help but ask you uh, one more question. Jerry, you and I have been talking about this for ages. The X-47B was supposed to be the unmanned aircraft that paves the way for autonomous aircraft operating off of carriers. You and I know at least five chiefs of naval operations who tried to bring naval aviation to that trough to drink from it, and it just has not happened. And it was a little bit of subterfuge involved in getting the MQ-25 aboard a carrier. 
what is it going to take to get the naval aviation community more comfortable with the capability that is absolutely critical to extending the range of the carrier and to its relevance you know, I understand the role of the carrier, and some look at this as a sizing construct or an organizational construct, and it is indeed, but it is the nation's most expensive weapon system. And you want it to be useful in those high-end environments. What's it going to take to get over the reluctance of the Naval Air Forces to significant unmanned capabilities being fielded, whether from ground stations or aboard ship? So... I think that the difficulty has been that there's both a cultural aversion to unmanned combat aerial vehicles or in an attack role, despite the fact of the numerous advantages that would have accrued to naval aviation had we firmly embraced the X-47D program. You know, there we had an all aspects, stealth, long range, penetrating uh, attack aircraft that was operating very successfully on the carrier deck, had it done its landings, had done its takeoffs, it's done its refueling. And yet we didn't want to take that next step because I think manned aviation at that point in time uh, was a little bit concerned about mission growth as well as budgetary growth of unmanned and what that would mean for like deck space on the aircraft carrier and so on. And yet those are the exact things that we need now when we consider the China threat is you're going to need something that, again, all aspects stealth has a penetration capability has the ability to carry a, a significant amount of ordnance internal to the aircraft design and an engine and range diagram that's going to allow it to bridge that gap. There's going to be, if we look at DF-21 or even DF-26 and having to stand the carriers outside, how do we bridge that gap to get in there to aid allies and partners? And so that rejection uh, that happened within naval aviation is something that I think the only way that's going to have to overcome that is really an alignment between the Navy's civilian leadership, meaning at the service secretary level, as well as the uniform leadership, having someone in the CNO's office in cooperation with the SECNAV that can impose a change of culture and technology upon the Navy, quite frankly, like Arleigh Burke did uh, when we integrated nuclear-powered submarines and guided missiles into the fleet back during the 1950s. Well, that's a long way back to go to find a time when we really transform the fleet. But I think that that is a great example of how strong civilian leadership and military leadership, uniform leadership can bring about change. If we just leave it up to the system to slowly evolve evolutionary versus revolutionary, I don't think we ever get there uh, because organizationally we are really hard structured. Does this extend to stealth as well? Because the Navy has always been reluctant about stealth, has opposed the F-35C at almost every step in the process, even though it's a great capability to have in the carrier. Indeed, you know, there are those who've argued that we should have a big deck amphib with five or six stealth airplanes on them, F-35 Bravos, which would be more useful in a scenario like this. How do you overcome the Navy's sort of always been reticent about the uh, lightning how is it going to be more stealth friendly when it comes to the FAXX? You know, I think a lot of the hesitance about stealth is that from a maintenance standpoint, maintaining the stealthiness of a naval aviation aircraft at sea in a heavy saltwater environment and in the jostling that goes on coming on and off an aircraft carrier flight deck or even storing things down the hangar bay is very hard to keep the stealthiness up. And so there's been a hesitance of moving away sort of from the workhorse approach to aviation to something that's more of the thoroughbred approach to aviation. 
but quite frankly, you know, I can tell you that historically we had the same argument. When we went from propellers to jets that, you know, jets were going to have a less range, less endurance, higher maintenance costs. But we made that leap. Uh, again, it was sort of an imposed leap when civilian leadership of the Navy during the 50s sort of said, you shall transition naval aviation from propellers to jets. I think that, you know, at some point in time, if you force feed them to say you will go to stealth and you will go to long range and you will go to unmanned, uh, they will have no uh, choice but to go along. But they will make arguments about, well, it's going to be a loss of 05 command opportunity. And then what does it mean for us? And we're going to lose deck space on these carriers to unmanned. Uh, I think there's also another part of this, Vago, is that there will be a tendency not to fly stealth aircraft as much as manned aircraft. And naval aviation puts a lot of stock in the daily day quals, night quals, and the qual cycle. We're probably going to need to step back and look at that qual cycle going forward to try and figure out how to most efficiently operate naval aviation in the future. Look, as a former squadron maintenance officer, albeit in a land-based aircraft community, the one thing I can tell you is that we cannot use the maintenance and the challenge of maintaining uh, stealth aircraft, F-35 Charlie in this case, as an excuse uh, to not fully embrace it. In fact, we have to fully embrace F-35 Charlie and everything that goes with it from the maintenance and the arming and the development of TTPs. We have to fully embrace everything it can bring to the table if we are actually going to achieve what we want to achieve with FAXX or NGAD or whatever you want to call that. If you want to operate in the next generation, if you want to move from fourth to sixth generation, you have to take that step, that iterative step of figuring out everything and how it works in fifth generation. And right now, I have strong concerns that naval aviation is not fully embracing F-35 Charlie and getting the most out of it, whether it's on the flight deck, in the hangar bay, or in the air. And so that's the one additional thing that I would just want to really stress. It's always a thoroughbred look at naval aviation when Dr. Jerry Hendricks is on the Air Power podcast. Thanks so much, sir, and super to have you back. Great to be here. Thank you, gentlemen, for a great conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on the Air Power podcast. And if you liked what you heard, hey, tell a friend, unless you think it would give them a competitive advantage. Thanks also to GE Aerospace for powering the entire flight. We'll be back next week.